Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. That's true. In 1980, Margaret and I, uh, uh, we had a bishop in in our Orem ward who believed that somehow... um, Okay, it starts. I was in a bishopric at BYU in a in a when I was single, I was called into a bishopric, and the state president uh, who called us was released, and a new state president was put in, and this new state president was extremely simple-minded and very very conservative, and. For some reason, he didn't like my bishop or me as the first counselor or a second counselor, and he wanted us out. And he released us. And after we released, we were released, some of the students at BYU would come over to our house just to visit and talk. And this, uh, I, I don't know how this happened actually, but. Um, our bishop in Orem got wind of this, and he was he was contacted by the state president who had released us, and he was told by that state president that we were troublemakers and that we should not be allowed to speak or anything, and not have any callings. And so, and and that bishop in Orem was uh, there. Are a lot of simple-minded people in the church, and they do get into leadership positions, and and so that bishop took him at his word. And so, um, in fact, we were, we were scheduled to speak in the ward and, uh, for sacrament meeting. And we got, he called us in just before the sacrament meeting and said, I've heard word from your uh, old state president that you're troublemakers. And so if you say anything out of line, I'm going to push this button and you're to sit down. The red light will go on the podium and you're to sit down and stop speaking. And I said, well, that's, how do I know what is you think is out of line? You know, I said, I don't know. What, what do you want me to be wary of? He said, you just, you just don't say anything out of line. So Margaret spoke and then I spoke. The light didn't go on uh, on the podium, but the light went on in my head that this was going to lead to trouble. And what happened was that that bishop, who was a bishop of a normal ward in Orm, Utah, um, his stake president, our actual stake president in Orem, commenced a six-month investigation of Margaret and I, in which we were called in on a number of occasions with Margaret holding our baby, I was holding one baby and she was holding the other. And they would interrogate, particularly me, um, about my beliefs. And I said, well, okay, I had answered their questions, but it became very uh, antagonistic. And, uh, and I, I am sorry to say, I, I wasn't, I don't suffer fools lightly. And so I told him, I said, look, there are general authorities who teach really horrible things and they never get in trouble. And I haven't said anything that you pointed out that is unscriptural and I'm in trouble. So what is this favoritism for these leaders? He said, well, give us an example. I said, well, you take this, uh, uh, Sterling, uh, Sterling uh, W. Sill, yeah, Sterling W. Sill, an insurance salesman who they made an assistant to the twelve, and he's up at Rexburg at the church school up there, and I got a transcript of what he said. He told the students, "Well, the Lord said, uh, do not uh, put your tra- you know your treasures are in heaven." The Lord said, you know, your treasures are in heaven. And it, it, and then he says to the students, if it makes sense to uh, build up your treasures in heaven, doesn't it also make sense for you to build up your treasures on earth? And then he starts giving them economic investment advice. <laughs> and, and, they, and so I'm saying this to them as an example of false teaching. And the state president says to me, well, what's wrong with that? And I said, because the Lord starts out by saying, do not do not lay up unto yourselves yeah. treasures on earth. 
but lay up unto yourselves treasures in heaven. I said, this man is is contradicting the statement that the Lord makes in the New Testament. Why aren't why isn't he under investigation? Silence. So this is the kind of stuff that went on in three. Uh, they started at six in the night and ended at midnight. We did this three times with them, and they're investigating us. And at the end of this six-month period, I get a call from the state president's first counselor, and he says, "We are not op- we are not optimistic about finding ev- any evidence against you. We are not optimistic about finding any evidence against you. So we're dropping." The charges. Well, after that, we happened to be we moved to Salt Lake, and in this new uh, ward, I was called to be the eldest quorum teacher. But the next week, I was released, and the eldest quorum president told me, he "said Look, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but the reason why you were released is because your records indicate you're some, there's something wrong." Oh. And I thought. Yeah, let me check on that. So I had my friend was Hartman Rector Jr. who was a, yeah. a general authority. And so I called him up and I said, Hartman, I said, my, do you think my records might be tagged? Because I, I just got released from a calling I was just called to. And the, the elders quorum president told me it was at the behest of the state president. And he said, there's something wrong with me. I wonder how, what's going on? He said, I'll check. So about a few days later, he calls me back and he says, yeah, your records have been tagged. And you're not supposed to get any callings, and you're not supposed to receive any. Uh, uh, I don't think you could get a temple recommend. He said. I, I said. Well, is there anything that can be done about it? He says. I can't do anything about it. So it really did. It was a kind of an informal excommunication that happened in 1980, and it was after that because up until then, I, I, I would not speak out. Outside, I would not be a, one of the many general authorities in Education Week who was trying to make a name for themselves. Yeah. I wouldn't do that, and either would Margaret. But after that, we we decided that we all bets are off. We're going to start speaking at Sunstone. So in 1984, Margaret actually was the first uh, between the two of us. She was the first one of us to give a speech at Sunstone, and her speech was a seminal uh, speech on the subject of women in the priesthood. It was called um, uh, uh, The Forgotten Place of Queens and Priestesses in, in the Establishment of Zion. And um, I'm forgetting the full title, but that was the subtitle. And um, yes. Uh, and that was given in 1984. And it was, people heard it, and then they wanted her to give it again the next day because. Other people wanted to hear it, big deal. Well, I was babysitting the kids the first day she gave it, and so I got a babysitter so I could hear it the second time. And then the next year I began giving uh, speeches at Sunstone. I'd give maybe two a year. Yeah. And uh, these are all collected in my books, which are all available on Amazon. But uh, the first book I think that came up is The Sanctity of Dissent. Yes. And then The, the Sabbath of Doubt. And then there was the or the Sacrament of Doubt, the Sabbath of Death, and then the Serpent and the Dove is my most recent one. It was six years old now. And uh, so in these books, I collected most all of those uh, presentations that were given at Sunstone uh, in the years from 1985 right through probably 1994. Okay. And uh, we had a couple of questions uh, in the chat um, that we were looking at, Valerie Hoyle um, asked, just going back a little bit to the way that the leaders put things line upon lines, um, do you think that the changes that Nelson has made um, when he dies, um, that the things will be changed back to whatever the next prophet decides? Are we, are we, I guess, happy to say that the next prophet won't think twice about throwing Nelson under the bus. Well, I think there's a way that the next prophet could throw Nelson under the bus by saying that the the um, the the decision on the name change, sorry, mm. for the period of time, but it does, it's not necessary to go on. It's not an eternal principle. 
Yeah, soften, soften the that, view on it. How I handle that. Make Mormon and okay that, again. I confuse. They'll say, well, for the period of time that he was the prophet, that that was important that we we deal with that. But now that time has passed, and we can go on to something else. Yeah. They'll always they'll always find a way to have their way. Yeah, they'll they'll always twist it one way or another. And um, Donald Allen says as well that um, leaders have decided that the obedient are the wheat and others are now tares. And I think that makes sense, you know, because if you're not a yes man, you're not going to toe the party line, then. Yeah, except for the fact that obedience is the first law of hell. It, <laughs> uh, obedience is the devil's plan. Yeah. Is the what every despot wants. Obedience is the core principle of crony capitalism, where you shove you, you what trickles down is misery, and what percolates up is benefits. The burdens go down, and the benefits go up. This is what the leaders of the church have opted into, and they can't get out of it now. So basically, it would take. Um, it would take a miracle on the level of the party of the Red Sea in order to get this church back on tra target. They have moved the superstructure of the church off the foundation and onto this, this mud and sand. Uh, and how are they going to, you know, yeah, collapsing in front of us? I, I mean, we, people are leaving. Uh, people don't believe them anymore. People, people in the church are told by Rusty Nelson to get va vaccinated, and they won't get vaccinated because they're following Trump or something else. The, the church, it's over for them. Yeah. And what can I say? I mean, you know, back in 1992, when uh, my friends and I organized the Mormon Alliance, we spent six weeks writing a three- or four-page letter to the general authorities listing these 12 or 13 points, 14 points, that I can't remember how many now, where we told them that if you continue to do this, you're going to lose the church. Yeah. And they all got the letters. They were all sent letters. They ignored them. And instead, they they excommunicated uh, me and Levina, who was on that committee, and they excommunicated uh, Lynn Whitesides, I think, was on that committee. They excommunicated the... the some of us who had been, you know, had the temerity to suggest that they might be wrong. Wow. So it was total radio silence to the letter. Oh, absolute radio silence. Wow. And and to, to say that, as you said, you've got friends who were general authorities, but there was no phone call or anything to say, you know, watch yourself or. Well, no, uh, Marlon Jensen contacted me uh, regarding one of my speeches at Sunstone where I was extreme. I, I have become more and more critical of the 12 apostles over the years to the point where I sound hysterical. Uh, that's what's happened because they don't listen. Yeah. And, but Marlon, early on, Marlon Jensen wrote me a nice letter and said, it's a, I, I think you, you're right. There's a problem that we have here. And it's as if you're in it's from your criticisms is it's as if you sat with us in a lot of these meetings because your your intuitions about what goes on here are right spot on. And uh, but then he backed off because, you know, he's under orders. Yeah. You know, and uh, I did get that very nice message sent to me from Howard W. Hunter when he was the president of the church. He said, uh, tell Brother Toscano that I think highly of him and that we will try to make amends. But he didn't live long enough to make any amends. Yeah. And so um, it's not like they haven't heard me and they haven't heard, they didn't, they heard Michael Quinn. They heard Levina Anderson. They heard some of the others uh, that were complaining early on uh, about how they were managing the church. That they, they heard you nibbly and his managers versus, uh, you know, the, yeah. that he gave that to BYU that people know about. They, they heard about that, but they don't want to change. And that's because they have this ridiculous seniority system. 
where you have to obey the guy up the ladder whose who's buttocks you're looking at as you're climbing up the ladder. You have to obey him. <laughs> you have to obey the one above him. Oh, my gosh, that imagery. Above him, until recently, felt like they had to obey the one that was dead. But I think Russell Nelson has figured out this line upon line, precept upon precept. They figured out a way to get around that. So now they can throw Brigham Young under the bus for racism. Mm -hmm. Although if you look at the history of racism in the church against uh, people of black African descent, that racism was pinned on the Lord. Yeah. Lord was blamed for the racism. It was treated as a revelation. The first presidency authorized special missionary lessons with the missionaries in Brazil so that they could eliminate anybody who had black people in their genealogy. And they had a way of sorting that out and not baptizing. They were not only keeping black men from getting the priesthood, they were keeping those families from getting the temple blessing. They were keeping them from getting the gospel. Yeah. Because, they, because Brigham Young was a racist. Mark Peterson was a racist. Harold B. Lee was a racist. Spencer Kimball had to wait till those guys were dead, and Mark Peterson was on some trip down in South America before he pulled the apostles together and prayed, Lord, you've got to forgive us. Yeah. And then, you know, Bruce McConkie makes up this story about, you know, uh, the, the powerful feeling that they got was guilt. <laughs> when they realized that they'd been peddling... Uh, racism yeah and in the father and the son and the holy ghost yeah well no wonder to me that you know they go in the holy of holies and the lord doesn't show up i can understand exactly why he doesn't show up yeah and and i i have had conversations in the past with um tbm family and friends who are still very active and they say to me when i bring up the racism of, of previous brethren. They're like, oh, well, everyone's a bit racist in different ways. And, you know, Brigham Young wasn't perfect. It's it's the old, they're not perfect argument. And well, um, people who don't think they're perfect, you know, who, who have the view that they are perfect are them. Yeah. The rest understand that they're not perfect. If only they understood that. Yeah. But they, they act as if, you know, the Pope says, the Catholics believe the Pope is infallible, but no re Catholic really yeah. goes along with it. Mormons teach that the prophet is not infallible, but they all don't go along with that. They all pretend like he is, and they act like he is infallible. So we have, where the Catholics have a de jure view of uh, infallibility, we have a de facto view of infallibility. We think... Oh, yeah, it's not in the record that he's infallible, the prophet, but we're going to treat him as if he is. And that's what's happened. You cannot question them. You can't even have an interview where you question them. No, I think uh, that's one really fast way to get excommunicated, um, even even quicker than yourself, you know, to, to actually publicly. Um, they can't find me. So they can't excommunicate me, just so you know. I'm in hiding from the church. They don't have my current address, and I don't live anywhere near the address. Don't be afraid to be excommunicated. It's not a bad life. <laughs> One day. It's, it's, it's my. Mean, it's, the spirit abandons you. And also, Mike Quinn took the position that his excommunication was not valid because it was never sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. There you go. And I may warn them that their second anointings are not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise either. So if they have the idea that they can get second anointed and do anything that they want and then get a pass, they haven't read carefully our scripture. All of these ordinances are metaphors. Your salvation, your, 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 your ordinations are not complete until God himself lays his hand upon you, was what Oliver Cowdery told the Twelve in 1835. And they have forgotten that. They get the, and the other thing they've forgotten is that the 107th section says that the apostles aren't supposed to be hanging around Salt Lake running the church. They're supposed to be a missionary body. Yeah. And 
have authority with the first presidency only in the mission field where there's no church organized. They shouldn't be hanging around Salt Lake, lining up in order of seniority to go to the urinal. They should stop that. They need to get out of town. Yeah. Well, they did get out of town. Last month, uh, three of them came to the UK. Um, It was Ballard, Holland and Cook. And Holland stood up and basically they they did a special UK and Ireland conference and they just told everyone, look, we know it's true. We're really old. We wouldn't have traveled across the world to see you if we didn't know it's true. So just trust us and, and follow. And Jaffe Holland stood up and I've put videos online, word pretty much word for word. He said, Elder Ballard wouldn't tell you this, but I will tell you this. And he said, Elder Ballard, Elder Cook, he named their wives, he named his own wife, and he used the words that their salvation is sure. He said they, yeah, got, they got that sort, sorted out a long time ago. He called it a free, a free, or he called them home free and yeah. said that they'd got a permanent pass. Yeah. And that's not true. No, absolutely not. It's not the doctrine of the church. It's their idea, but it's not the doctrine of the church. Yeah, well, they love it. It makes them gods in this world, doesn't it? I think Nemo, while he he posted those briefly, I I don't know whether you posted them or he did, but they were taken down. But before they were taken down, I watched all of it. Yes. And I'm sitting here in Murray, Utah, watching these men in the UK, thinking, how, how can they have the temerity to think that they are witnesses of Christ. They are counter-witnesses. They, when people, you see them standing in the pulpit, I said this to one of my state presidents, who was that, that state president in Orange. I say, you know, you, you stand up in the pulpit, and, and when the young men in the state see you, they grab their testicles and run, because the last thing they want to be is like you. You are the worst exemplars of Jesus Christ that you could possibly find. You're not inspirational. You're just boring. Yeah. One of the great signs of heresy, other than, you know, apart from burning people in the town square, the great signs of heresy is boredom. The boredom in Mormonism is the sign that the spirit has departed. Yeah. it's boring. Like you said, boy, the church was doing something back in your day because you could still speak and get I mean, an audience with the, I could sit down and had to sit down with Boyd Packer once. Fine. You know, you could do that. You wouldn't make much headway, but at least you had access. Now it's all bureaucracy. Well, I've, I've been going back through general conferences and in general conferences back then, they actually said something, even though I might not agree with what they said, they said something. General conferences have become so watered down. It's it's like I don't know. It's nothing well, to I have it. A hilarious, I have a hilarious story about that. Joseph Fielding Smith Jr., who became the tenth president of the church, was speaking at a, I think it was a state conference I was attending. He was a senior apostle. He was going to shoot into the presidency very soon. And he gives a speech taken from Isaiah. Uh, this uh, I, I can't remember the chapter, but it's that the the women are with round tires like the moon, and they're made up and tinkling ornaments. And he was quoting all of this stuff, which is a metaphor for uh, idolatry. And so he gets up and he uses it to con- try to convince the girls and women of the church not to wear makeup, not to doll themselves up, not to worry about fashion. That's how he interpreted Isaiah. He sits down and his wife, Jesse Evans Smith, gets up and she says, well, I know he's an apostle and I know he's uh, a senior, but we girls know that we all need a little makeup sometimes. Oh my gosh. And she contradicts him. That's amazing. And and never gets up afterward and says anything about it. Could you imagine? Jesse used to follow him around and do this stunt 
every time he gave that speech, he would get up and said, yeah, but girls, we all know that we need a little makeup. That's amazing. That's a very different church. Yeah. That was kind of pre, before correlation really set in. Yeah. And and I think it, it would have been refreshing to actually see because sometimes on the on the lower levels now, when you get area authorities that come around different things, it's interesting to see that they are um, just people in marriages just like our own, and they, you know, they have crosswords. And sometimes that happens on the stand, like you said, you know, when when a brother will say something, and he'll reference his wife who's sat looking crossly at the back of his head, and different things. But when you get to general conference levels now and, and probably, but when you get to anyone that's on the payroll from the, maybe the first quorum of the 70 upwards, it's it's a very sterilized message. Very sterilized. The horror is that when the women, the, general, the apostles' wives meet for lunch, they sit in order of seniority. Never. Of their oh my gosh. And there's that story that L. Tom Perry told. He let the cat out of the bag when he said when the when they meet in, on Thursday and they they pass the cho- they get a free box of Cummings chocolates in Salt Lake. We have a chocolatier; it's very good Cummings chocolates, and uh, they give a free box of chocolates every Thursday to the twelve, and they hand it around in order of seniority. Oh my! And Tom gosh. Perry was. Got the chocolate I wanted until I got to be a senior senior member of the twelve because they they pick them out in order of seniority. It's absurd. Like you said, they all queue to the urinal in order of seniority. They do. They queue to the uh, yes okay. urinal. We say urinal, but I think we both know what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, there's one more story that I wanted to touch on because um, you in in the notes that we've we've got. It seems crazy Mormons, you've called it. Pemberley or Gasmatron and being tossed out of the Mesa Temple. Well, these are three stories. I'll try to tell them quickly. One day, my wife and daughters were walking along the University of Utah campus. And it is a university. It is, it is. She is a tenured professor there and was chair of the department that she, she recently got out of being chair so I can see her occasionally. Um, but my daughter, a couple of daughters, and she were walking across him, and they met an old friend of hers, an old, an old, a, a kind of crazy guy. He used to have a, a thing for my wife before she married me. And uh, he says to her, I've come up, come up with a, a novel. And the novel is about... Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy convert to Mormonism and go to Nauvoo. Of course they do. What do you think about that? See, I don't have to say more than that. Can you imagine? I I yeah. I live um, maybe obviously near Kolob, but my earth home is about 200 meters from uh, the house that the Bronte sisters grew up in. And there's, there's nothing would be stranger than, than get one of the Bronte novels to somehow tie into. Yeah. Mr. Rochester goes to Nauvoo or something. <laughs> Well, the that was that story. The, the 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 one about the orgasmatron was really weird. Uh, I get. An, I'm not going to mention these people's names because it's. I'm going to try not to mention. Uh, so I got. Uh, uh, this was back in the early '80s. I got a knock on my door in Orem, and these people I know come in, and they're telling me that they they've come uh, with information that they now know how to get revelation from the Lord every time. Okay. I said, well, okay. And the way they do it was they'd all, there was three couples. They'd go to the temple with a particular question that had to be answered yes or no. And they go to the temple. And if the 
and they had and the and the one fellow was apparently the one who was gifted with getting the revelation and the way it would happen would be this sometime during the temple ceremony if the answer to their question was yes he would get an erection oh and if the answer was no he oh wouldn't <laughs> oh my gosh it did and i well, this is a rather curious gloss on this revelation about working with the rod <laughs> and, uh, and uh of aaron and i thought well i want you all to leave because i'm going to draw a line in the sand here and say that you know this is but you know once people it's not about believing in the lord and grace and believing in god's gospel through jesus christ that isn't what makes people crazy what makes people crazy is when they fixate upon some collateral issue like the age of the earth or the shape of the earth or um polygamy which is to me a collateral issue it, 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 it affects your belief in Joseph Smith as to whether he was actually getting revelations or not. But I could dismiss it and say Joseph was simply wrong about this because polygamy has nothing to do with the spiritual transformation of me. It has nothing to do with rebirth. It has nothing to do with that narrative arc that goes from being born of the flesh born of the spirit and maturing spiritually and coming to the point where yes, God could appear to you and seal you to heaven, but he's not going to seal somebody to heaven who has been marinating in privilege in the council of the 12 for the last 30 years. Mm. He's going to, it's the widow's might who he points out. It's the woman in Samaria that he is interested in. It's the woman who's going to be stoned for adultery that he's interested in. And when the two apostles tell him that, why don't we just rain down fire and lightning and fire on our enemies? And Jesus says, no, you got that wrong, James and John. That's not my gospel. Yeah. When it's people raining down judgment on others, when they make, you know, they, they decide to focus on masturbation as a sin next to murder. Yeah. And you say, really? If, if, if that were true, there would be a lot more murder in our ward. <laughs> and, and so you, you, you have to, it, it's a kind of fundamentalist attitude where rather than window back and, and try to understand what the gospel is about, about spiritual transformation, about not being immersed in pure materialism, it's about not seeing everything is a machine. The galaxy is a machine. The solar system is a machine. People are machines. Animals are machines. Because as soon as you do that, you're able to objectify them and use them like machines. You can treat the middle class and the lower class workers as machines that are at the disposal of the Elon Musks and the, and the Bill Gateses and the, and, and, and the uh, whoever they are, the people that run Facebook or Google or whoever they yeah. are. They use people like machines because they see them as extensions of the computer. Yeah. But but you but the, the gospel of Christ is to see every individual as a soul so valuable that Christ would come to earth and God would come to earth incarnate as Jesus Christ and lay aside his divinity and his sovereignty and his glory and his omnipotence and his omniscience and omnipresence and lay all of that aside and say, I will come to you because you couldn't come to me. I will love you and want you to love me as equals. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's not about kingdom building. Or money. Yeah, money is the kingdom. Yeah, you can buy anything in this world with money, and they're definitely selling it. Um, so the the final story of those three is your experience in the Mesa, Arizona temple. And well, we went down tonight to be witnesses for our friends who were getting married in the temple in, in Arizona. 
And when we got there, we, we on the night before they were to go, get married, we went to the temple and went through an endowment session with both the bride and the groom. Mm-hmm. And we were to be the witnesses the next day. Yeah. So next morning, we get up early, we get dressed, we drive down with the bride and groom and their family to be witnesses. And we got to the Mesa temple and uh, we presented our temple recommends at the door, which we had done the day before. And it turns out that our bishop in Orem, who had been received bad news from our previous state president of BYU, he had called the temple presidency in Mesa and said that he was revoking our temple recommends. Wow. He, they, they were taken from us at the door and we were not allowed in and we weren't allowed to be witnesses. And we kind of walked around the Mesa Temple kind of, in, my wife was more hysterical than I was, very humiliating, because we were part of the wedding party. Yeah. We had to spend the rest of the day with these people without giving them much of an explanation of why we were kept from going to the temple. Well, you'd basically just been given a big black mark. Oh, it was, yeah. I mean, if he had said, well, finish your wedding and then come back here and we'll give you an interview and see whether there's anything to what we've heard. Yeah. No. No, the, the, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, it's another level of that authority though. You know, it's, it's like, um, it's just something else to hold over you. I do think that the church these days are more, I say understanding, I think they're less, even though at the top it's still ultimate authority, I think on a local level there's less of that because they know that if they take it away from people, people will just go somewhere else. You know, the the information's there that the church um, has done a lot of silly things. And if they're, they're not excommunicating as many people, they're disfellowshipping. Because if you excommunicate someone, it's harder, you know, it's a harder road back for them. And if they're taken by maybe church history issues, then they just don't come back. Whereas if you love them in... Excommunication has a lot more uh, negative effect, a lot more powerful when there isn't a cataract of people leaving the church. Yes. Like a waterfall. Yeah. Uh, people leaving the church. Now they're thinking, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so quick. But they still do it. If you if you can say just about anything, but if you criticize church leaders, you're done. Yeah. And the reason for that is because the current leadership of the LDS church has basically uh, turned its back on most of the revelations of Joseph Smith. The only one they really care about is that Joseph Smith got the priesthood and passed it on to them. And they interpret this priesthood as giving them absolute authority, even to change the gospel. Yeah. You know, Jesus said, you know, you can't serve God and mammon. And they say, yes, we can. Yeah. Jesus well, says you need to into a spiritual family they say no we're going to seal the biological family and they put the proclamation on the family out there as the new gospel that jesus says well your apostles are supposed to be in the mission field they say no we're going to be a board of directors here in salt lake yeah well i, I genuinely think that the the fewer scriptures i know that they say you know you read your book of mormon every day because that's like drinking the kool-aid on a daily basis for them but when it comes to the Bible and anything outside the Book of Mormon, I genuinely think they wouldn't be bothered if you didn't read the Gospels or if you, you know, you didn't read the, the New Testament and the actual accounts of Jesus there because everything they need uh, is encompassed in the Book of Mormon. And they're the only ones that, you know, they're not the only ones that have it, but that's their thing. You know, if you if well, it's true, but they don't really want people to actually close read the Book of Mormon because I don't think the Book of Mormon 
stands for what they teach. I mean, for example, in the Book of Mormon, there is no Heavenly Father. Jesus is the Father and the Son throughout the Book of Mormon. Yes, yes. And I've seen the scriptures where they've um, changed things to make it make it three individual I, I will disagree with you there james joseph smith changed it but only because he's trying to make the other scriptures consistent with mosiah 15 because in mosiah 15 uh christ is revealed as the father because he was conceived by the power of god and the son because of the flesh they being one god the father and the son but if you ask yourself I can understand the phrase, Christ is the son because of the flesh. That's easy to understand. Yeah. But why does it say that Christ is God, Christ is the father because he was conceived by the power of God? That makes no sense. It would make sense if you said Christ was the son because he was conceived by the power of God. But it doesn't say that. It says that Christ is the father because he was conceived by the power of God. What is the meaning of that very mysterious statement that appears at the outset of verse 3 of Mosiah 15? Well, I'll tell you. What it means is that before anything was created, God existed alone full of glory which represented all the potentials of the future of an infinite future and it is only when he conceived the creation that he becomes the father of the creation so in the moment that god before anything was created but god the eternal god that was infinite the infinite essence in the moment that god conceives in this timeless spaceless energy thing he conceives the creation in that moment he becomes the father but it's jesus jesus is the father and because he enters his creation to assume our imperfections with us he becomes the son so in the nephi where he sees the virgin mary Originally, it was she was the mother of God. Later, Joseph changed it. She was the mother of the Son of God. Yes. That's because he's making clear that she's not the mother of the Father that existed before creation. She is the mother of God after he incarnates. So he is the Son of God. Okay. So, in other words, there's only one supreme being, and that's Jesus Christ. Okay. Mormonism. Book of Mormon doesn't teach Trinitarianism. It teaches exactly what it states in the frontispiece of the book, that the purpose of the book is to convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself to all nations. This is a completely different Godhead picture. Yeah, so how... The only why there are other gods, that's the only reason why... In, in the Old Testament, the, the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, is because there are other gods, but those are gods whom God has made gods. Us, Theosis, that ultimately his goal is to bring all of his children into the Godhead. Now, we will not be like, he was God from all eternity, but we we are created gods in his image. And that's a message of the Book of Mormon that it's not what the church manuals teach. What they do is subordinate Jesus to a fictitious Heavenly Father that does not exist. Okay. There is no Father. There's only Jesus. Now, there are archangels. Adam apparently was an archangel who comes down and is Adam, and Jesus is the son of Adam in the sense that all people are. And and maybe he might have been directly the son of Adam, if we believe Joe Brigham Young's story that uh, 
Adam is a resurrected being had intercourse with Mary, and they produced Jesus Christ. That was Brigham Young's teaching. And then maybe Adam, in that sense, is the father of Jesus' body. But Jesus is the supreme being. And that is not what the church teaches now. So the leaders of the church don't read the Book of Mormon very carefully. They just want people to read it as proof that the church is true and that they're the true leaders. Yeah. But they don't want people to read it for its theology. No. Because if you read carefully Mosiah 15 or Alma 13 or Alma 42, or if you read the book of Ether, uh, where the finger of the Lord, uh, the brother of Jared sees the finger of the Lord, says, I didn't know you had a body. And a little bit later in that passage, uh, the Lord says to him, yes, and this is the same body with which I will appear to the Nephites. Well, that should shock us right down to our core, because what body did Jesus appear to the Nephites with? A resurrected body. Yeah. So Jesus already been resurrected. The, the, Nibley, I talked to Nibley about this years ago, and he said, oh, yeah, the Book of Mormon suggests multiple resurrections. When people can lay down their lives and take it up again. Jesus can do this. I mean, this is Mormon doctrine, but the leaders of the church have pulled as far away as they possibly can so that they can do, like you say, try to convert more people who are already Christians and bring them in. But the reason what they get is very fundamentalist conservative thinkers yeah. who are willing to subordinate their judgment to the judgment of the Mormon leaders. Okay. So I went off there. No, it's fine. It's fine. Well, we're we're coming to a close. I didn't want to. I think I think we covered some really interesting stuff, and we could go on for a lot longer. But the one question that I want to kind of pull this together with is, what do you think the future of the Mormon Church um, is going to be? Well, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, it, I wrote a book recently called Mormonism in Crisis, uh, a critique and a defense. And in, in there, there's an essay called The Trajectory of Mormonism. And I think that unless there is, I, I think that unless there is some kind of miracle, I think Mormonism will go away of the Seventh-day Adventists and the Shakers and the, you know, one of these millennial religions. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that the leaders, if there is a second coming, I don't think they're preparing them for that because uh, it's not going to be a two-year supply of food or uh, having 124 billion dollars socked away in the stock market is going to help. I think you have to be able to believe in something other than the materialist, the scientific materialism, something more than the materialistic worldview. Yeah. You have to be able to believe that the universe has a soul and that the galaxy has a soul and the solar system has a soul. We have souls. We have to begin to believe uh, in living things. We have to stop, you know, when we see a horse, we should think about riding it and petting it and loving it instead of dissecting it. Uh, we have to stop tearing things apart and thinking that we get more knowledge by going down into smaller units. We have to be able to see animals and other people and even the solar system as a living thing. Yeah. But we don't. The leaders of the church don't encourage us to do that. They just encourage us to obey. Yeah. Pay, pray, and obey. Pay, pray, and obey is not going to help people. No. And, well, so some people somehow manage to go through life, and, and that's, that's, that's it. But I think as soon as you have... As soon as you have that moment where you say, I don't know, and I don't think they know either, 
that opens a whole kind of can of worms when it comes to you you then look outside the leadership for an answer and whether that's in prayer whether that's in looking more closely at the bible instead of the book of mormon or looking um, at secular sources but they would say that that's all uh, anti-mormon sources and different things because it's not on the church website or it's not in the approved list that they give you to uh to read etc if only if only people did that what i see happening is that people who were true believers become true non-believers they go from fundamentalist belief to fundamentalist non-belief and they don't go to exploring religion they just become atheists now i don't i don't have judgment for this because i think that if you've had a soured experience of religion then uh yeah i and why you become an atheist but um but i don't see mormons leaving the church and becoming more spiritual i see a lot of them just giving up entirely on religion altogether that doesn't mean they be, they're bad people or that they're going to go to hell or anything i don't believe in hell that's one of the selling points of mormonism we don't believe in hell but they're not they don't put that in the lead they bury that that we are universe we believe in universal salvation so i the answer to your question i just think mormonism is going to become less important for people it become more fundamentalist and therefore it'll just become irrelevant yeah no absolutely well thank you so much for your time if you can wait right there um i'm in the fortunate position that we can carry on our conversation after the show's finished um but thank you everyone for tuning in and um yeah just another big thank you to paul for your insights and the stories because you're you're looking from a totally different angle to many of us on the outside of mormonism now who have never you know rubbed shoulders with prophets and apostles and spoken to them frankly so that was just amazing to hear those things um everyone out there please share this interview um subscribe to the channel if you feel um you can support the the blog please leave a tip using the link below and our next guest next week will be Clay Wademan, um, who grew up in a polygamous sect called The Work. And he was one of 45 children. And we're going to find out how that affected him and, uh, yeah, where, where his life went after that very crowded upbringing. But thank you again, Paul. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you on the next one. See ya.